The Old Testament reading is Psalm 14, Psalm 14, and this is the word of the Lord to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. For those who are visiting this morning, we are working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. And this morning we are at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, this may seem like a cruel and unfair thing to do, but... Now that our son, uh, Sander, has uh, moved away uh, as of this past week, I'm going to use him this morning uh, in a sermon illustration. And I don't think he would mind too much, but uh, he won't be here to uh, defend himself. When our kids were younger, uh, we taught them a children's catechism called the First Catechism that is uh, based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And one of the questions in that catechism is, how sinful are you by nature? And the answer is, I am corrupt in every part of my being. Uh, we taught our kids this catechism while we were living up in Alaska. And as you can imagine, uh, living there in the wintertime, one of our constant uh, struggles with our kids in the winter uh, was to make sure that they were wearing a jacket when they went, uh, went out somewhere. 
And as parents, we didn't always uh, succeed in ensuring that our kids were properly attired uh, for the Alaska winter. And on one uh, frigid Sunday morning, as we were heading into the church building, uh, Rob and my wife noticed that Sander, our son, that he was not wearing his coat. And so with uh, not a little exasperation in her voice, uh, she said to Sander, Sander, why did you not put on a jacket this morning? And without missing a beat, Sander says, because I am corrupt in every part of my being. <laughs> of course, we had a good laugh about that. We thought that was pretty funny. But the sad reality is that each and every one of us, as those who have inherited the sin of Adam, uh, truly, for all of us, from birth, what the Catechism says is true. We are corrupt in every part of our being. And we are not only born with this innate spiritual corruption, but as we grow older, we manifest this corruption in the actual sins that we commit. And this is what, in theological terms, is called total depravity. As our Confession of Faith puts it, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite all good and wholly inclined to all evil. And so we are, by nature, sinners. That is what we are by nature. And our sins are usually far more destructive than simply forgetting to put on a jacket in the wintertime. By our sin, we offend a holy God, we hurt others, and we bring upon ourselves God's eternal condemnation. And I can't think of any other passage in all of Scripture that proclaims this truth with more clarity and with more power, this truth of our innate sinfulness, than this passage that we have read this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans. In these verses, the Apostle Paul, he not only describes for us the awful nature of our sin, but he also tells us what this means concerning our standing with our Creator. And so, in this passage, we learn not only about our sin, but our predicaments. And those will be the two points that we focus on this morning, our sin and our predicament. So first, our sin. So with this passage, the Apostle Paul, he brings to conclusion uh, the argument that he began back in chapter 1, verse 18. And that argument is this, that all people, all people everywhere, Gentile and Jew, all people equally, are sinful, unrighteous before God, and therefore are subject to God's righteous wrath, his anger. And so Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then Paul goes on from there, from chapter 1, verse 18, up until the end of chapter 2, to demonstrate this truth that all people, both Gentile and Jew, are under sin and therefore are subject to God's righteous condemnation. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, and this is the passage that we looked at last week, but at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul does affirm that the, that the Jews, his own people, the people of Israel, that they have been given by God certain privileges or advantages that God had not given to any other people of the world. First and foremost, among those privileges 
is what Paul calls the oracles of God. And these oracles of God or the word of God contain God's covenant promises to his people Israel, promises of salvation. Nevertheless, the mere possession of those promises in Scripture did the Jewish people no good because they did not receive them by faith. They possessed the promises, they possessed that uh, that covenant with God, but they did not receive it by faith. And therefore, for that reason, these privileges did not help them. And so they did not receive uh, these things by faith. Because, as Paul says, they are sinful and unbelieving, just like the Gentiles. And so Paul does affirm uh, again in chapter nine of verse three, that as long as the Jewish people remained in their sin and unbelief, they had no advantage over the Gentiles. He says in verse nine, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And so in this way, Paul, he levels the playing field. He says, yes, we Jews, we people of Israel, have received uh, from God the unique uh, privilege of being his people. God made us the people of God, and no other people are his covenant people. Up until the coming of Christ, of course. Paul says... If I can paraphrase his argument, yes, the Jews have circumcision. They have the oracles of God. But despite that, because of their son, their sin and unbelief, they are in the very same place as those idolatrous and lawless Gentiles. They are under sin and under the righteous wrath of God. And having said that, then Paul goes on to weave this very impressive and this very sobering tapestry of Old Testament verses to show that this doctrine that Paul is, has been arguing for, that he has been demonstrating, that all people everywhere are sinful, both Jew and Gentile, that this is not something that he made up, this is not something that he dreamt up in his own mind, but that this is the very truth of God. This is what God reveals in his word. And so it's as though Paul is saying, now let me put an end to all debate and all discussion and all doubt about this teaching of the total depravity of all people by saying three little words, it is written, it is written. And so he says in verse nine, as it is written, and then he goes on to quote several Old Testament verses to show the sinfulness of all people. And so we have in verses 10 through 18, uh, a collection of Old Testament passages Uh, They are drawn from various places of Scripture, but they represent the consistent, uh, the repeated witness of Scripture that the entire human race is corrupted by sin. And taken together, these three verses teaches three things about our sin. First of all, the extent of our sin. Uh, Secondly, the comprehensiveness of our sin. And thirdly, the depth of our sin. So first of all, the extent of our sin. And again, we are looking at verses 10 through 18. Now, there are many people in the world who would say something like this. They would say, uh, even though nobody is perfect, we all make mistakes. We are all flawed in one way or the other. Nevertheless, people are basically good. There is in everybody some goodness. People are basically decent creatures. Or uh, they may say, and perhaps there are fewer people who would be willing to say this. Most people are good. Most people are decent people, but there are some 
who are truly bad, some who are irredeemably, irredeemably evil. But how many people are willing to say this? All people, including myself, every single human being is born with a heart that is not basically good. Every single person is born with a heart that essentially is bent not towards what is good and right, but is bent towards that which is evil and wrong and twisted. Not many people would say that. Not many people are willing to say that. Uh, If you posted that on Facebook, you probably would not get a whole lot of likes as a result. Saying something like that sounds like the... the, uh, the bitter ruminations of some tortured soul who has a despairingly bleak outlook on the world. But what does the scripture say? The scripture says that that is the case, that we are all under sin, that we are all corrupted by sin from the heart, from within. Look at verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so what these verses are saying is that there is not today, there has never been, and there never will be a single human being who is descended from Adam, who is free from the corruption of sin. No one is innocent in the sight of God. All people everywhere are guilty of sin. And so Paul begins this this collection of Old Testament verses to show us uh, the nature of our sin. He begins with this truth, that is the universality of sin. Notice how he says, all people, none is righteous, no one does good, not even one, no exceptions. And Paul does this in order to underline the truth that he has been arguing for in the previous passages that we've looked at. And that is that the Jews, his own people, those who thought that they were righteous because they had the law and kept the law because they had God's covenant, they had circumcision and all of that. Paul is saying here, no, you unbelieving Jews, you too are sinners. You are no different than the Gentiles. The whole world is under sin. The whole world is condemned by God because of our sin. We are all in the same boat. He says in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together, together, Jew and Gentile have become worthless. Now, this is a hard teaching. But this is the truth. This is the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. And what may be the hardest part of this teaching is accepting that this truth applies to me. It applies to me. We're not supposed to add to scripture, but I think mentally we ought to add the little phrase after these verses, including me, including me, at least add it mentally. It's one thing intellectually to accept in sort of an abstract way. Yes, I believe that all people everywhere are sinners, but it's a lot harder to accept that my heart is bad. I am bent towards evil. I am not a basically good person. 
That's a lot harder to accept. But if you don't accept it, if you do not come to, uh, to terms with this teaching, that we are fundamentally corrupt, that you are a sinner, if you do not come to terms with that, then the gospel will remain foolishness to you. You will not understand what it means that Jesus died on the cross. It's only as you begin to see by the grace of God this innate sin that is in you, this corruption that is in your heart. It is only as you begin to see this that the grace of God in Jesus Christ begins to be a wonderful and a precious truth to you. And that truth of the grace of God is this, that I am a great sinner. Yes, I am a great sinner. I am worthy of God's condemnation. But Jesus is a greater Savior. He forgives me. He gives me a new heart. He gives me his spirit. He is at work in me to make me good and righteous and holy. And so first, these verses show us the extent of our sin, that the entire human race is implicated by these verses, Jew and Gentile, all people. As Paul will go on to say in verse 23, chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But these verses also teach us about the comprehensiveness of our sin. In verses 13 and 14, we see how our speech, our words are evil. And now we're dealing with uh, the manifestations of sin, how, how sin shows itself in the things that we say and do. In verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. If we're not using our words to destroy others, we are using our words to flatter and to lie to others, to get them, uh, to, to bend them to our wills. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, which should be the source of praise and blessing and sweetness. The mouth, our speech, has become the source of all evil, what Paul calls, or what the scripture calls, curses and bitterness. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see how our actions are also sinful. Verse 15, their, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Well, how true this is of us as, as the human race. The, the history of our race is a history ever since Cain killed Abel. It is a history of violence, murder, slavery, wars, genocide. The list goes on and on. And in verse, verse 18, we see how we also sin with our eyes. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In our sin, in our blindness, in our, in our self-love, in our rejection of God, when we look out at the world, all we see is the world. We do not consider the God who created it. We do not consider the God who gives us life, but we only see the world. And we only desire what the world can give us. And so there is no room in our thoughts for God who gives us life, who created us and who sustains us. And so in this way, these verses speak to the various aspects or parts of our being that are corrupted by sin, our words, our actions, our desires, all are tainted by sin. And we can expand this to every other part and faculty of our being, our understanding, our reasoning, our motives, our willing, is all corrupted again by the sin that is within us. 
That answer that Sander reminded us of that one day is so true in the catechism. I am corrupt in every part of my being, every part of my being. And this is what is meant by the term total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that every single human being is as possibly bad as he or she could be. Thank God that is not the case. But God in His grace restrains the sin of the human heart so that it does not break out in all of its, uh, you know, in, in full force and power in every single human being. But what total depravity means is this, is that there is nothing in me There is nothing that comes from me. There is no part of me that is not tainted or corrupted or poisoned with sin. There is nothing that I can bring out from myself that is not that that is pure and holy and righteous in the sight of God. Sin has corrupted every part of us. That's total depravity. And that's the comprehensiveness of our sin. The third lesson these verses teach us, teach us is about the, na- about the nature of our sin, is the depth of our sin, the depth of our sin. Uh, Jesus also had much to say about the subject of sin. And what he taught us in his word is that the source of sin, the source of corruption, it comes from within. We are not defiled by the, by the things that are without us, but we are defiled from what is within us, that is our heart. And so Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And so sin comes from the heart. But that that brings up the question, Well, what is wrong with the heart? Why has it become the seat and the origin of sin? And the answer is this. It is with the heart that we have rebelled against God and against his rule over us. It is with the heart that we have devoted our service, our worship, our love, not to the true God who is truly the one who is to be worshipped, but we have given ourselves and worshipped to the idols of our own making. It is because our heart is bad. It's because we do not worship God. We do not submit to his rule. That our whole being then has become corrupt. Notice how at the beginning and the end of this collection of verses. So looking again at verses 10 through 18. At the beginning and the end, like two book bookends, God is mentioned. Verse 11, no one seeks for God. Uh, Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so at the beginning, no one seeks for God. At the end, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in between, these verses give us all kinds of examples of the way in which uh, sin manifests itself in our lives. And what this means then is that our sin and all of its ugly manifestations, it is the consequence of our rebellion against and our rejection of God as our God. Because we do not seek for God, because there is no fear of God before our eyes for this reason. For this reason, we do not do good. Our speech is evil. Our actions are sinful and so on. And notice that the first thing that we are condemned for is that we are not righteous. We are not righteous. In verse 10, it does not say there that none is decent. 
or that none is moral or that none is nice. There are many, many people who are moral and decent and nice. But it says in verse 10, none is righteous. None is righteous. You see, God requires more of us than that we are moral people, that we are decent people, that we are nice people. What God requires of us is that we are righteous people, that we are holy people, that we reflect the righteousness, the holiness of God, and that true righteousness only begins with a heart that seeks the praise, the glory, the worship of God above all else. A heart that is seeking anything else than the glory of God is not righteous and nothing will come from that heart that is truly righteous. And so what makes us guilty before God is not just the sinful things that we say and do and think, but what makes us guilty before God most of all is that at the very deepest part of our being, in our hearts, there is no love for God. Our hearts are literally, by nature, our hearts are godless, and therefore our lives are godless. And so these verses show us not only the extent of our sin, the comprehensiveness of our sin, we also see here the depth of our sin. And of course, the sin puts us in a terrible predicament. And that's what Paul goes on to explain next in verses 19 and 20. Uh, the problem of our sin is not merely that it causes all, kind, all kinds of suffering and misery for us and for others in this world. But our problem, our chief problem, because of our sin, is that we are guilty before a holy God. We are condemned before God, a God who must punish unrighteousness. A God who cannot abide with that which is unholy and unrighteous. And therefore, we must, until the grace of God intervenes, we must bear forever God's righteous wrath against us for our sin. And what's more, as Paul will go on to say, to say as we see, there's nothing we can do about it. We are helpless. We are mired in our sin. We are bondage to our sin. And we cannot free ourselves. In verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So just as these verses from the Old Testament that Paul puts together, just as they uh, declare that all people everywhere are under the power, the dominion of sin, they also declare that all people, Jew and Gentile, because we are sinners, therefore, we are rendered guilty before God. We are without excuse for our sin. We have no excuse. We can make no excuse for our sin. And so Paul says that every mouth may be stopped. The testimony of the word of God is that we are guilty. We cannot make an excuse for ourselves. And so the whole world is accountable or liable to the judgment of God for sin. Now, at this point, someone may say to the Apostle Paul, but wait, wait, Paul, has God not given us his law? Has God not shown us what he requires of us? And is it not true that if we are faithful and diligent to keep the commandments of God, to walk according to his law, 
Is it not true that we can become righteous? We can be right with God. We can be saved. But the problem is, is that because of our sin, we do not keep the law. We cannot keep the law. Rather, our innate corruption is such that when we hear the law, by nature, we do the very opposite of it. The law says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so naturally, what do I do? I worship an idol. The law says, thou shalt not steal. So naturally, what do I do? I steal. That is the nature of the sin that is within us. It does the very opposite of what the law commands. And so because of the sin in our hearts, the law can only produce in us sin. What Paul says in verse 20, what he calls the knowledge of sin. What that means is that I come to know sin from experience because when I hear the law, I break the law. And so for that reason, Paul says in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law cannot save us. Whether it is the Jew who is trying to establish his righteousness before God by keeping God's commandments, or whether it is the Gentile who is trying to live uh, an upright life according to the light of nature and conscience, uh, the law that he has received in that way, in both cases, no person can make himself righteous before God. No one can be justified, no one can be right before God by doing the works of the law or by, or by doing good works. Now, isn't this, act, isn't this exactly the opposite of what we naturally think and what many people naturally think? What our natural way of thinking is this when it comes to salvation. If I live a good life, if I am a good person, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, if I try to be honest and upright and moral, then certainly God will let me into his heaven, will he not? That's the way we think about salvation. If I am good enough and I can be good enough, God must let me in into glory. Our daughter Mariah, uh, last week, if you were uh, here for Sunday school, uh, she gave a presentation about uh, her time that she spent at the Boardwalk Chapel in New Jersey. Her and the other uh, volunteers, the staff there, uh, took part in evangelism every day. And she mentioned a game uh, that the Boardwalk Chapel has that's a way to um, uh, begin conversations with people about, about the gospel. And uh, the game is uh, called the Heaven and Hell Machine. And it's a series of seven statements. This machine has seven statements. And you are supposed to answer true or false to each one. And if you answer all seven statements correctly, uh, apparently uh, a light lights up that says heaven. You're going to heaven. But if you get one of the statements wrong, uh, the light lights up that says hell. I don't think that uh, the Boardwalk Chapel makes any claims for the infallibility of uh, uh, the judgment of the heaven and hell machine. But it is a useful tool for beginning uh, conversations about the gospel. But Mariah told our family uh, how many people, or she, she mentioned to us, she told us about the fact that there are so many people who will get uh, every question right up until the seventh statement or question. 
And so some of the other statements are things like uh, God cares about right and wrong. So most people say true. Uh, God will punish sin. Most people have no problem with that. They'll say true. Uh, Everyone who has ever lived will one day stand before God to be judged. Most people will say true. So far, so good. But the seventh question is the one that many, many people stumble over. Or the seventh statement. And that is this. If a person does his best to live by the Ten Commandments and does more good deeds than bad deeds, he will go to heaven. So many people say true. That's when the hell light lights up. But that is the way that the world thinks. That is the way that we think by nature. Keep God's commandments. Be a moral person. Sure, you made mistakes. Sure, you've done some bad things, but, but try to be good. And if you're good, outweighs the bad. God will honor that. He will, he will let you into his heaven. But no one who has read what Paul says here in chapter 3 and who has taken that to heart can never entertain such a notion. Anyone who has read this and taken it to heart knows that that is a false hope because Paul says in verse 20, by works of the law, by works of the law, we can expand that to say by good works, by being a good person, however you want to put it. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You and I cannot be made right with God. We cannot be in a right standing with God. We cannot have the hope of being let into God's heaven. We cannot be justified before God on the basis of what we do. On the basis of our goodness, our morality. And that's because of our sin. We stand condemned. We cannot keep the law. We cannot do good. In God's sight. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that really is the message of this passage this morning. And that's how our passage ends. But this would be a terrible place to end the sermon, wouldn't it? We're not going to end the sermon here. Because praise God, this is not where Paul ends his letter to the Romans But he goes on to declare that there is hope for us. There is hope for us as sinners. Despite our corruption, despite our condemnation, despite our helplessness, God has done for us what we cannot do. He has given us his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we have failed to live, who bore the penalty of the sin on our behalf so that by faith in him, you can be saved. Because Jesus was the one man. He is the the one exception to this rule. All of these verses from the Old Testament, they say all are condemned, all are under sin. But there's one exception. And that is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. He was the one man who was perfectly righteous. The one man who sought after God with his whole heart. The one man who walked in the fear of the Lord all his days. He was the one man who was not corrupted or tainted by sin in any way. He was the one man who rendered to God a life of perfect obedience. And he did that for you and me. So that if you come to Jesus by faith, 
Your sins are forgiven and you are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so, no, you cannot be justified. You cannot be made right. You cannot be saved by anything that you do. But by coming to Jesus by faith and by bringing to him not your works, not your goodness, but by bringing to him your sin, your need and coming to him by faith and trusting yourself to him. That is where you are saved. That is where salvation comes. And you receive from him freely the gift of everlasting life. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are considered righteous in the sight of God. And there's a sense in which as believers in Christ, these verses are no longer true of us. But there's also a sense in which they are still true of us because we are still sinners. There is still in our hearts that remaining sin, those seeds of sin. And as believers in Christ, then we read these verses and we, we recognize Apart from the grace of God, I would quickly become this in reality. So I want to finish then with just two very brief uh, lessons to take from these verses. And both of them have to do with humility. Based on the fact that though we are saved by the grace of God, nevertheless, there is still this sin within us. And the first lesson is this. In our attitude towards others, we must always remember that by nature... We are no better than any other person. How can we say that we are better or superior than any other person because of my Christian piety or morality? We cannot say that. We cannot look down on others. We can only look across at others and say, she is a sinner and so am I. His only hope for salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And that is my only hope for salvation. And so we must always remember that we are no better than any other person in this world. We are much better off because we have received the grace of God in Christ. But by nature, we are cut from the same cloth. Secondly, second lesson, in our dealings with others, we must always be ready to acknowledge any way that we have been wrong. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, Christ is at work in us. He is sanctifying us. We have been forgiven. We are being made more and more like Christ. Nevertheless, these verses should remind us of just how liable we are to sin, particularly when it comes to our dealings with others, especially when it comes to conflict with others. We are so quick to tell ourselves, I am in the right. That person is in the wrong. We are very slow to examine our own hearts to see how we may be in the wrong. And these verses should, should compel us to think that maybe I'm missing something. What did I say? What did I do that was wrong? How have I sinned against this other person? And so these verses call us to search our own hearts prayerfully, asking the Lord to show us where we have wronged others And so as a final word, look to Jesus Christ as your hope for salvation. Never forget what you are in Christ. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are adopted. uh, You are, are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. But also never forget what you are apart from Christ. You are, apart from Christ, a sinner corrupt in every part of your being. 
You are helpless and hopeless apart from the grace of God. But we can give all thanks and praise to God, and we need to give him thanks and praise for the grace that he has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And he has, this is what he has saved us from. And so let's uh, give thanks to the Lord for his uh, grace to us in Christ. Let's pray.